Well, good morning. Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 2. And we're going to look in particular at verses 1 through 7. You know, just a couple of weeks, literally a couple of weeks, two weeks after I was married, I found myself 200 miles away from home, 200 miles away from my new bride in army boot camp. Now, keep in mind, particularly young folks, that this was before any modern technology. There was no such thing as email. There was no such thing as texting, no social media, no Insta, no Facebook, and all those other little things, right? None of that existed. However, we were blessed. Phone calls were allowed, but only on the weekends, And they were very expensive because back in those days, there used to be this thing called long distance telephone calls. And on a whopping buck private pay of $280 a month, those were rare. So I was left with regular old snail mail. Each day before lunch, we would all gather back in our squads and we would stand there in our lines and my heart would be just pounding. There was this thing called mail call. My heart would just be pounding, just hoping I would hear my name called. And once it was, I'd leap forward and I'd grab my letter and I couldn't get away quick enough from the group in order to read it. And I'd find a secluded spot over to the side and I'd read it through real quickly because I had to rush over to get to the mess hall to eat lunch. I'd gulp my lunch down and then I'd go and find a secluded spot where I could really read it. And, and then, particularly because I wanted to at least digest it a little further before I had to get back to my training. Then that night, as I'd lay down to go to sleep, I would read it over and over again. That season was was a very lonely season in my marriage, a very lonely lonely season in, in my life. And those letters actually bridged the gap of separation between my wife and I. Believe it or not, a couple of weeks ago, my wife collects things, right? A couple of weeks ago... I found a tote on a closet shelf, and it had those letters in them. We, I began to read them. We were both crying and laughing simultaneously, you know, crying at the sadness of poor Tim away at boot camp, but, but, but laughing at the love that God had, had brought into us, even though we were pagans at the time. This letter of Second Timothy was very much like that for Timothy. It was a dark time in his life. He knew that his beloved father of the faith, his beloved teacher, had been arrested and that he would soon face death. Paul knew of Timothy's timidity, which gave him reason to be concerned about his dear son in the faith. H.G. Mole, in his devotional commentary, said this, Timothy stood lonely yet awfully exposed in face of a world of thronging sorrows. Well might he have been shaken to the root of his faith. Paul knew that his beloved son in the faith needed encouragement. He he needed to be invigorated so that he could stand strong during this difficult time of his life and this difficult time of his ministry. As, as Timothy read this precious letter from his loving father in the faith, not knowing if he would ever even see his teacher again, I'm sure that his heart was deeply stirred with the realization that this was Paul's dying legacy to him. 
Timothy would have drawn comfort. He would have drawn strength and set new resolves as he read this precious letter. So this morning, we're going to look, as I said, at chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, and we're going to see four responsibilities of a dedicated shepherd. Four responsibilities of a dedicated shepherd. So follow along with me as I read chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 7. You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So the first responsibility of a dedicated shepherd that we see here is the responsibility of personal strengthening. The responsibility of personal strengthening. First, we got to address the therefore. Paul uses the conjunction here to connect these two chapters. Timothy, based on your sincere faith in chapter 1, verse 5, based on the gift of the Holy Spirit whom you received at conversion, kindle afresh the gift of God, verses 6 and 7 of chapter 1. And Timothy, because of the Holy Spirit indwelling in you, guard the gospel, chapter 1, verses 8 through 14. With that in mind, you, my son, he says, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now, this you is a very emphatic you. I was a very rambunctious young man. And when my mom wanted to really get my attention, she would take my head in her hands and cradle my face and keep me from moving around so she could stare straight into my eyes and say, Timothy, that's my name too, right? Timothy, I want you to pay attention. I want you to understand what it is I'm telling you. That's how emphatic this is. You, therefore, my son. Paul had addressed Timothy as his beloved son in chapter 1 and verse 2. There's great intimacy between the two of them. I, I simply love that. This intimacy comes because Timothy is now a born-again child of God and Paul's child in the faith. So as his father in the faith, Paul tells him, look, what I want you to do is to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. He was to be strong. The ESV says to be strengthened. Paul wasn't telling him to to get it together and muster up strength within himself and to flex up his muscles and to grit his teeth and put his jaw out there like, like some kind of strong man. Paul does emphasize this strengthening. He actually uses the verb three times in, in talking with Timothy, but this is an, a present imperative that shows that it's not an all-at-once infusion of strength. Rather, it's a continuous progressive and growing strengthening, just like the physical growth of a child with the passing of time. The verb is also passive, which indicates that the strengthening must come from outside of Timothy. But being made strong does involve the cooperation of Timothy also. As I said a minute ago, he's not supposed to just muster this up on his own, but he isn't supposed to just sit there passively either. He is to actively 
key word there, actively tap into the source of the strength, which Paul tells him is in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. This is the inexhaustible supply of God's favor that is made available in Christ. And it's it's an abundant strength that, that sustains and causes spiritual growth for all children of God, not just Timothy, all children of God. That's great news, isn't it? We don't have to muster this up. This is God's strengthening in our lives. We can see this in Paul's teaching to the church in Ephesus, where the one doing the strengthening is Christ. He writes in Ephesians 6, 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And he says it again in 2 Timothy four seventeen. but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. It's the grace of God that strengthens all Christians to live the Christian life and to accomplish the, what God asks us to do, whether it's some active activity or maybe it's enduring suffering. Did you catch that? Yes, maybe enduring suffering. The grace of God in our lives strengthens us even to accomplish suffering in our lives. God's Grace is so gracious that we could say it's his enabling power for all things to live life. Jesus said it this way in John 15, 4. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. So we can best summarize it like this. This strengthening is not a matter of trying harder, but of intentionally resting in Christ himself. Key word there, intentional resting in Christ himself. Not only does Paul lay forth this responsibility for spiritual strength, but he combines with that the responsibility to handle accurately and communicate faithfully the apostolic message. And we see that in the second responsibility of a dedicated shepherd, which is the responsibility of spreading the word to faithful men, or we could say the responsibility of propagating the gospel, the responsibility of spreading the word to faithful men, the responsibility of propagating the gospel. We see this in verse two, the things which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This is very close to what he said in chapter one, verse 13, Retain the standard of sound words, which you've heard from me in, in faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. When Paul said the things which you've heard from me, he means all that he had taught Timothy, all that that um, Timothy had heard Paul teach in the past. And look, it says in the presence of many witnesses, this wasn't private meetings. This was in the presence of many witnesses. Um, these were messages that were given to lots of people. Scripture teaches us that at this time, the transmission of the gospel was primarily oral. Ephesians 1.13 says, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of, of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Philippians 4.9, The things which you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. First Timothy four sixteen. Pay, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. 
persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Second Timothy four seventeen. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that through me the pro- proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear. Paul's love for Timothy is even displayed in this, in, in that when he instructed him to teach what he'd heard in the presence of many witnesses, he wouldn't be standing alone. Somebody couldn't say, oh, that's just what you got, Timothy. No, this was done in front of lots of people. Many others heard these things also, and they would be able to defend what he was teaching. Now, perhaps you're thinking, uh, you know, here's where the skeptic can come in, right? You know the game where if I told uh, Caleb over here on my far right something, I whispered it into his ear, and it goes all the way through the auditorium, all the way to the guy in the far back left, Chances are pretty strong that by the time we get back here, that it's not going to be anything in the world what I said over here, right? But that's not how it was here. Uh, how you know that we can't be skeptical about that. So if we can't be, then how can anyone trust what Timothy or any of these other witnesses taught was actually what Paul? That's a great question, right? Well, evidence shows us, historical evidence shows us that in oral cultures where where memory has been trained for generation after generation, oral memory can accurately preserve and pass on very, very large amounts of information word for word. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 reveals to us how important oral instruction and memory of divine teaching was stressed in Jewish culture. Listen to Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words, which I am commanding you today, shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Listen, it's a well-known fact that the rabbis of the Old Testament had much of the oral law and the Old Testament committed to memory. In a culture where this was practiced, memorization skills were far more advanced than where they are today. And, you know, I I think that the modern technology that we all marvel about has really been a detriment to preserving our memories, right? We just can click and have it rather than pulling it up from our hearts. So that's a challenge for all of us to be more diligent in memorizing God's word. New Testament scholar Daryl Box states that the, the Jewish culture was a culture of memory. What Paul wants is for all that he has taught to be passed on. What Paul had entrusted to Timothy, he's now charged to entrusting to others. Again, it says the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Timothy is to entrust these things. This means to commit something to someone else for safekeeping or transmission to others. And it's important to notice that he's not just to entrust these things to any old boy that'll listen, but rather to men who have a particular characteristic. 
a characteristic of faithfulness. This means that they must be reliable, trustworthy men. These are men that have a a strong sense of duty or a strong sense of conscientiousness. In biblical Hebrew, the word faith and faithfulness are grammatically related to one another. Although both concepts are important in the Old Testament, there's really no exact English word equivalent to those Hebrew terms. The most relevant, this is just fascinating to me, the most relevant Hebrew verbal root carries such meanings as strengthen, support, or hold up. In a physical sense, it's used of of pillars that provide support for a doorframe. Moses used the word when he disclaimed any role as a supporter of the Israelites. And also in Greek, the word is pertaining to being worthy of belief or trust. We might say trustworthy, faithful, dependable, inspiring trust. Well, with that notion of firm support as the bedrock for faith, words such as firmness or trustworthiness best convey the related concept of faithfulness. These are men who display trustworthiness, men who display steadfastness of character, men who are unwavering, fully committed to their promises. And Paul describes them further as men with skill. He says these are men who will be able to teach others also. These are faithful, skillful men. Now, it's important to understand that God is the one who provides the skill through the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. And the faithful character is produced by walking, key word, in obedient, in an obedient manner to the commands of God. It's crucial for the church of Jesus Christ that this pattern be followed. If the message, the gospel, is entrusted to unfaithful, unskilled men, then soon it becomes perverted. This point is very important because there are those who are in opposition to the truth, verse 25, who will turn away from the truth and not endure sound doctrine, chapter 4, verse 3 and 4. Also, there are leaders who will oppose the truth, chapter 3, verse 8, and who go astray from the truth, chapter 2, verse 18. Well, in such a setting, it's imperative that those to whom the teachings are entrusted be faithful in handling accurately the word of truth. Chapter 2, verse 15. Sadly, I witnessed a perversion of this, as Paul warns us about a couple of months ago when I was in Peru. The church in the village I was visiting has been taken over by an unfaithful unskilled man that is teaching false doctrine. He doesn't believe in the sufficiency of scripture. He's going outside of the scripture and trying to lead an entire flock of sheep away. But praise be to God, the other elders in that church recognize this false teaching and have been able to shepherd the flock away from that wolf. Amen, right? This guy actually locked the church and wouldn't let anybody else in there for months. So the church is meeting in one of the parishioners' backyards. I had the privilege of preaching there in December, and it was more people than I'd ever seen before. I said, somebody needs to email that wolf and tell him that the church is growing because he's not there, right? I mean, 
praise God for those elders that have taken that flock away from the jaws of a wolf because of their faithfulness, because of their godly endowed skill, they have been able to shepherd that group. Well, um, Paul received this treasure from the Lord and he passed it on to Timothy, who is to pass it on to other capable men who in turn will pass it to others from generation to generation. And here's a good spot for an advertisement for the Expositor Seminary. You know, we are so blessed as to be one of 11 campuses across the country of the Expositor Seminary that God has grown that ministry even right here in Faith Community Church to allow us to be able to equip, equip men, faithful men endowed with the skill of God to be able to preach his word to the sheep that he is bringing our way. Well, in verses 3 to 7, we see the third responsibility of a dedicated shepherd as a resolute endurance for the gospel, a resolute endurance for the gospel. Verse 3, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Well, here we see the main reason that Timothy needs to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. With this command, Paul comes back to the same verb that he used in chapter 1 and verse 8, where he said, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. He says, y'all, you ready? He says, suffer hardship. Paul's telling Timothy and all Christians to suffer ill treatment, to undergo the same type of suffering as he is, to join in suffering, to assume one share of suffering, to suffer together. The idea that we may suffer for our faith, you know, that just sounds kind of weird today. I mean, it's 2022 and we're in the United States of America, right? There was no better man than Paul, however, to give advice about endurance under suffering for the Lord Jesus. Paul, he'd been imprisoned, he'd been beaten, he'd been stoned, he'd been shipwrecked, he'd been hungry, he'd been cold, he'd been destitute. In spite of all those things and more, Paul managed to endure the suffering. He managed to finish the race and keep the faith. You know, hardships do come, if we're honest, in a variety of ways. They come in temptations, they come in illnesses, they come in lost jobs, they come in broken relationships, they come in death and persecution for one's faith. All those are forms of hardship. And we shouldn't be taken by surprise when hardship comes. Jesus himself warned us, in this world you will have trouble, right? The good news is that Jesus followed up this warning with the word of encouragement. But take heart. I've overcome the world. We can, we can, we can, we can endure by his grace. But here's the key. To endure is more than just continuing to exist. It is continuing to, to exist in the same manner as before the suffering began. If Paul had lived through his suffering, but at some point had thrown up his hands in defeat, stopped being obedient to God or no longer work for the cause of Christ, he wouldn't have endured. If he had responded to his suffering with an attitude of bitterness and anger or retaliation, then he could not have been said about him that he endured. Paul's response to suffering was not to buckle under the weight of circumstance, but to realize Christ had called his church to endure hardship. 
Paul said that, said that he actually rejoiced because in his flesh he was filling up what was lacking in Christ's affliction. Every time he was beaten, chained, or hungry, he identified more and more with Christ in his flesh. Paul could rejoice because suffering in the flesh for the sake of the church is a privilege of sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And as Christians, we should turn to God with our suffering. And you know what? He will be faithful to help us undergo every trial, every temptation. We can learn to have the same joy that Paul had during trials, knowing that suffering produces virtues, virtues such as endurance, godly character, and lively hope. To endure doesn't mean just to grin and bear it, right? You know, as Christians, we're going to feel sad. We're going to feel betrayed. We're going to feel angry at times. These emotions in in and of themselves aren't bad, though, right? They only become bad. They only become sinful if we allow them to take root in our hearts and produce bitterness, evil thoughts of revenge or unforgiveness. We got to remember that everything that comes into our lives is under the control of a sovereign God. Are you okay with that? Everything that comes into our lives is under the control of a sovereign God who has promised that he is working all things out for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purposes. Romans eight twenty eight. Jesus is the ultimate example of someone who endured hardship. The author of Hebrews, he reminds us of Jesus's perseverance at the hands of sinners. Jesus, listen, Jesus, in spite of great suffering, never turned back, even from the cross. Hebrews 12, 2 says, Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before him. And although he knew the suffering the cross would provide, he anticipated joy and that enabled him to keep going. He knew what the rewards would be, the redemption of mankind. Think of that. He knew the reward, the redemption of us, and, he, and that, that he would once again seated, be seated at the right hand of his father on high. In the same way, in the same way, you and I can find hope to endure when we consider the rewards that God has promised us. Now, that's grace, is it not? that we can endure this. Paul is setting forth the rigorous demands of the Christian life. Yep, I said that. The rigorous demands of the Christian life. I was very uh, misunderstanding when I was first saved. I thought, well, I'm a Christian now. Nothing bad could ever happen to me. Boy, was I misled in that thought, right? We, We know that the Christian life has rigorous demands upon us. And Paul is encouraging Timothy and encouraging us to be a good soldier of Christ Jesus, to be a soldier that expects to suffer hardship. The figure of a a soldier suggests obedience to orders, doing something that somebody else is commanding us to do, whether I want to do it or not, right? And rigid discipline. I learned real quick in that army boot camp that if I didn't say yes, sir, and do what the guy was asking me to do, that I'd be doing push-ups. And I don't particularly enjoy those. 
I joke around and say I did enough push-ups to push Fort Jackson, South Carolina, all the way down to Key West. We don't want to be doing those things, right? I want to be obedient to my commander. Any soldier in active service that expects a safe and easy time will not last very long at all as a soldier. There's great hardship. There's great risk and suffering as part of the call of being a soldier. In boot camp, this was during the Vietnam time. I can promise you those drill sergeants made it as hard as they possibly could. They made sure that we had great hardship and that and that we had to take great risk because in real battle, in real battle, when you come face to face with the enemy, things can go bad very, very quickly. I like the way the early church father Tertullian put this. Tertullian was born in 155. You know, that's early, right? And war and stuff, hardships were going on then. Listen to what he wrote. Um, this is in his address to the martyrs. Quote, no soldier comes to war surrounded by luxuries, nor goes into action from a comfortable bedroom. But from the makeshift and narrow tent where every kind of hardness and severity and unpleasantness is to be found. End quote. Listen, we as Christians should not expect an easy time. If we are loyal to the gospel, we should expect ridicule and opposition. Think about what I just said. If we are loyal to the gospel, we should expect ridicule and opposition. But you know what? That's really kind of okay, right? I mean, we live in this little part of the world that that's all we're going to get is ridicule and opposition to our side. But there are people that are suffering such hardship for the gospel that they're actually being killed. And all we get is a little mocking, right? We go to the company party and we're not slamming down the latest craft beer with everybody else. So we get ridiculed and mocked a little bit. Big deal, right? While Christians in other parts of the world are actually being executed for saying the name Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said, therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will confess before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Christ made it clear to us that if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Listen, war is hard, right? War is hard. The enemy of the gospel is very, very real. And if we don't anticipate and prepare for suffering, then when the enemy attacks, we're going to run like whipped dogs with our tails between our legs or even worse, join ranks with them. So it must be said that the only way that Timothy or any of us can be a good soldier and suffer hardship is because of the one who has enlisted us. And that is Jesus Christ himself. Well, with that in mind, Paul gives us three Images, three metaphors to show us how we can be dedicated shepherds that are resolutely enduring for the gospel. And the first one is he elaborates more on the soldier here. The picture of the soldier in verse four says no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Another memory I have of those boot camp days is the day I left home. 
my new bride dropped me off in downtown Atlanta at the old Sears building on Ponce de Leon Avenue. If you've been in Atlanta since the 50s, you would know where that building is. And I got on a bus with a bunch of other guys and, you know, everything was okay. You know, we all chatted and talked about what was ahead of us for the next eight weeks. Well, before long, those 200 miles were ended and the bus stopped in the front of a building. You know, I looked out wondering where my life was going to go next. And I thought, oh, this building looks okay, you know, and, and we, we unloaded and moved toward the building. I saw guys coming out of the other side with shaved heads and duffel bags full of equipment. And now it's my turn to enter the building. And, and I thought, you know, this, this is okay. This is okay. I can handle this. Once we exited the building, however, I noticed that those nice buses were gone. Instead were these big trucks with cattle cars on them, literal cattle cars. And we were told to load up. So we loaded up. We drove, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes. And all of a sudden we stopped, but it was an abrupt stop, I think probably intentionally to throw us all into each other and get us even more confused. And we gained our composure and y'all, all I could hear was screaming like I'd never heard before. Couldn't quite figure out where it was coming from. And the tailgate of that thing popped down and I realized I wasn't in Kansas anymore. These guys with blood red faces and Smokey the Bear hats on were yelling at us at the top of their lungs, telling us to dump everything that we just put in the duffel bag onto the ground. Anything that was not given to us was to be thrown in the trash. Anything we brought was considered from the world and was now completely useless for our new life. Jerry Ragg in his book called Courageous Churchman shares a very similar experience And he says this, not only were we systematically being cut off from civilian life and its comforts, but we realized that every potential hindrance to our becoming refined, chiseled military weapons was totally eliminated. Y'all, this was now radical transformation and singular focus. Well, in the same way, the minister of God's word cannot be distracted by the normal affairs of everyday life in such a way that he can't carry out the commander's orders. Now, this isn't teaching Timothy or any of us that we should withdraw from everyday life. I mean, we got to work. We got to provide for our families. The bottom line is a battle-ready soldier, a battle-ready soldier lives a very streamlined existence, desiring to please only the commander, the one who enlisted him. And of course, that is Jesus Christ himself, right? We got to do as the writer of Hebrews says and lay aside every encumbrance of the sin which entangles us. Why? So that we can run this race with endurance. Paul's saying that the primary concern for Timothy and for all of us as believers should be to please the Lord in every area of our lives. One of the verses I love that teaches us to do this is Paul's writing in 2 Corinthians 5, 9. He says, therefore, we also have, have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. That's the goal. We have a, as our ambition. Different translations have a different word, perhaps, for ambition. One of them says aim. One of them says goal. New American Standards ambition. I'm kind of hard-headed. I say all three of them to me. Tim, you need to have as your ambition, your goal, your aim in life to be bringing glory to God and pleasing him. So the first image Paul gives us 
to show us how we can be dedicated shepherds that are resolutely enduring for the gospel is the image of the soldier. Secondly, you can see there in verse 5 is the image of the athlete. The athlete, verse 5 says, Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. Now, Paul is drawing this image from the well-known athletic contest in the Grecian games. All Grecians were familiar with these games. They were as much a part of their society as, as baseball, hot dogs, and apple pie is to our society. Paul's thought here is that the athlete will not. He will not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. This, of course, refers to the laurel wreath that the winner receives as the prize. If he doesn't compete according to the rules or the laws of an athletic event, he will not be crowned even if he wins. Now, you might be wondering why this would have anything to do with Timothy as a minister of the gospel or with a minister today. Well, the point is that one of the laws of the Christian life is that God requires him and us to be willing to suffer hardship, as we've already said in verse 3, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, verse 8, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. And he says it very explicitly in chapter 3 and verse 12, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Think about this. In these times, these laurel wreaths, they would wilt, right? And, and the glory of the victory fades away. Nobody even knows, right? You might dry it and hang it in the closet somewhere and pull it out and worship it from time to time. But nobody cares anymore. It's all wilted. It's done. But the crown Paul's talking about is the crown of the Christian. And this is a crown of righteousness, which is imperishable. It will not wilt. Never, never, ever. And he says in 1 Corinthians nine twenty five, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. Then they then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Paul is anxiously awaiting his crown of righteousness. And he even tells us that in 2 Timothy 4, 8. In the future, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all, this includes us, who have loved his appearing. There is, however, a condition of being, on being crowned victorious. The reward hinges on whether or not we compete according to the rules. One commentator said this, how I do ministry is as important as the fact that I'm doing ministry. Let me read that again. How I do ministry is as important as the fact that I am doing ministry. Now, the third image Paul gives to show how we can be dedicated shepherds that are resolutely enduring for the gospel is the image of the farmer. We see that in verse six. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. To understand this, we've got to block out of our minds 21st century American farming with its million-dollar tractors with multiple onboard computers and GPS for 
perfectly straight rows, right? This is more like the hands-on farming I see when I go to Peru, where the shovel and the sickle are the main tools. And if you're extremely fortunate and got a little money, you might have a burrow to help carry some things. That's the kind of farming Paul's talking about here. Paul designates this farmer as a hardworking farmer. The verb hardworking is present tense, which pictures the unending toil that the farmer must give himself to. That's the image Paul wants Timothy and he wants us to see about ministry that we're called to. It's the wearisome nature of the toil of ministry in a local church. Paul himself wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5.12, But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. And also to the preaching of the word, he says in 1 Timothy 5.17, The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Or even the difficulty in striving after godliness in our personal walk with the Lord. Let me say that one again. Even in the difficulty of striving after godliness. Sometimes, y'all, you ready? It's difficult, right? It's difficult sometimes to strive day in and day out after godliness. Why? Because sometimes we want things our way rather than God's way, right? I mean, is that not true? Sometimes we want to do things our way. It's difficult sometimes to strive after godliness. Have you ever really thought about that word godliness, what it really even means? The Greek word translated godliness in most of our English translations mean, means a proper response to the things of God, which produces obedience and righteousness. If I respond properly to the truths of God's word, that is what produces the obedience. That's what produces my ability to live a righteous life. And Jesus is our example, right? He's the only one who ever did this perfectly. As he walked this earth, Jesus was the embodiment of pure godliness, which led him to lay down his life for unworthy sinners. His life was dedicated to the glory of the Father, and he always did what pleased his Father. Christians pursue godliness. We pursue godliness when we follow the example Jesus, of Jesus in dedicating every decision to the glory of God. Godliness is not, it is not a suggestion it is a commandment of God. And we see that in 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, Hebrews 12, 14. So in order to walk in godliness, we need the diligence of the hardworking farmer. Now, there's debate on what Paul meant by the farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. We don't have time to look at all those this morning. But I think it's easiest to say if the farmer does not share in the fruits of his labor, if he doesn't get a profit, well, then soon he won't be farming at all. Right. Of course, his labors and his fruit are for others to enjoy also. But he gets some of it, too. The fruits of a minister are produced through the preaching of the gospel and the fruits of those labors are the fruit in other people's lives. And that's true for every preacher today. The fruit for a preacher is the fruit that we receive from that preaching. 
The preacher has the reward of that in this life, the joy of seeing people come to faith in Christ. But a preacher still has a reward in the future, as all of us do, in our unfading crown of righteousness. A preacher preacher will also reap a harvest in the glory beyond this earth. You know, investors are primarily concerned with only one thing. And they call it an ROI, a, a return on investment. But as dedicated shepherds, dedicated disciples that are resolutely enduring for the gospel, we know we will reap a much better ROI. We will reap an EROI, an eternal reward on investment. Now, lastly, we come to the fourth responsibility of a dedicated shepherd, the responsibility to understand the images. Verse seven, consider what I say. For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. The present imperative considered demands that action be taken continuously and habitually. To consider something means to comprehend something through contemplation and reflection. This is the the ability to perceive, to understand, to comprehend, particularly in the spiritual realm. He tells Timothy to consider what I say referring to the three images that he's just set forth, he assures Timothy that the Lord will give him understanding. In other words, Paul wants Timothy and you and I to take these instructions to heart. He wants us to know that he that we must be willing to pay the price and endure hardship in the ministry according to the principle, no pain, no gain. We can do this by being motivated by the prospect of our reward. Even Jesus endured the cross for the joy that lay before him. Timothy knew that if he continued in ministry as courageously and as faithfully as Paul, he might also suffer as severely as Paul. So Paul encourages him to have the same unshakable confidence in Christ and the same willingness to suffer for Christ's sake. And the call is the same for us Today, if we are to be faithful, dedicated shepherds, faithful disciples of Christ's church, whether it's in your family, in your workplace, out on the street, in a Sunday school class, to your next door neighbor, the call is the same to be faithful, dedicated shepherds and disciples of Christ. And if we're going to carry that out, we got to heed the call of Paul in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight, which says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word to us. Lord, we know that in the very next chapter, Paul said, realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. It must have been difficult in Timothy's time to follow this pattern. And Lord, maybe it's even more difficult now since evil men get worse and worse, it seems, each day as we turn on the news. But Lord, we know what the standard is. And we've gone back this morning and we ask, Lord, that you would give us understanding in everything. And we remember Jesus Christ. We labor in his strength, not our own. We labor in his resurrection power, not our own. We are strong, Lord, in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, not our own. And so we thank you 
that Jesus, a descendant of David, came into the world as a man and was in all points tempted just like us and as a sympathetic high priest who has been touched with the feelings of our infirmities, he understands our weaknesses and our failures and compassionately lifts us up. Oh God, how we pray that you'll make all of us what you want us to be for your glory and your son's glory and in your son's honor, whom we love and in whose, in whose name we pray this morning. Amen.